0: Welcome to the After Hours edition of the uh, Boulder Bookstore and KGNU uh, Radio Book Club. Uh, We are here talking with author Stephen Graham Jones about his brand new book, My Heart is a Chainsaw.
1: So Stephen, in this book, you have a ton of references to different horror films and all sorts of things. And in the acknowledgments, I thought you pointed out two things. Uh, Scream, the movie Scream, and the Stephen King short story uh the Raft tell us about you said you saw scream I think six nights in a row when it came out. it sounded like it really captured your attention what What was it about that film and and what's it mean to you now all these years later?
2: It's actually seven times I saw it in a row I saw it my <laughs> I w- I did, like when I went to grad school I went there I made a deal with myself that you can only go to grad school if you work, not if you like hang out with people and like have fun it's only about writing you know and so I was there in my apartment in Florida. Tallahassee, Florida, writing one evening, and I heard a knock come on the door, and it's my friend Ryan Van Cleve. And he says, Hey, man, let's go to a movie. And so I fell into my usual song and dance of, um, Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually working on a story, sorry. And he, he said, No, no, I'm taking you to a movie. And I said, You know, actually, i got to finish this story tonight. i got another one to write tomorrow. And he said, No, I'm going to take you to a movie. And it finally got to be easier just to go to the stupid movie with him than argue with him, you know? And so he brought me, and it was Scream and watching that movie i could feel like the folds in my brain like cr- like moving because all the homework i had been doing my whole life was suddenly worth it you know <laughs> uh, all the nine on rentals i had done on thursday nights that i'd have until saturday and everything and and what i love about scream is that it's able to um, take a like a parodic tone it's able to do parody while still engaging the core dynamic of the slasher it is a love letter to the slasher but it's not a love letter that puts the slasher on a pedestal as perfect. You know, it's also critiquing the slasher and saying this this is kind of extra. This is not exactly how it should work. And um, I just really appreciate it. And Scream doesn't forget like a whole lot of horror and some slashers forget that um, you've got to have some humor in there with the terrible stuff. You know, you've got to balance it out. Like nothing is ever all horror or all funny or all romance. It's always mixed together. And Scream is really good at um, flipping that coin of the slasher, which is a scary face on one side and a smile on the other side.
1: So I watched Scream last night. You know, I had never seen it, and after reading that acknowledgements, I, I, uh, I saw it. And one, I was amazed by how many stars are in there that were very young at the time. Um, and two, yeah, the humor was great. And um, I thought there's a lot of things in the new book, your book, My Heart is a Chainsaw, that have co- not quite the same tone, but where where Jade is kind of calling out some of the tropes and they're, and the way they're called out. And I think at one point you say, maybe it's in the acknowledgments, Jade is Randy, in, and, and Randy's one of the characters in Scream. And I I was really captivated by it I, I i liked it much better than what i remembered slashers to be I, i'm kind of the friday the 13th genre and you know and i thought they were fun at the time but and but i thought scream was a d- whole different level actually
2: yeah scream was a wonderful huge escalation in the genre it recast the genre basically the the slasher had lost steam in the late 80s due to just the weight of its own sequels basically and it was franchising out freddy was on lunchboxes and Freddie was no longer scary. He was just a quipster, and um, and Jason was just lumbering around. He didn't know what to do anymore. You know him. He, he went. He went to hell. He went to Manhattan. Um, <laughs> he went uh, to space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there was just all kinds of, ridi- of of stuff happening, and um, Scream reset it. And like the first, like push of slashers is '78 to probably about '86. We call that the, or I say we. I call that the golden age of slashers but then scream ushered in a new like renaissance which you can call like neo neo slashers if you want and um they gave this it gave the slasher new life and we got Final Destination, Urban Legend, Cherry Falls. So we got a whole slew of other slashers which were try the same way Friday the 13th had been trying to cash in on Halloween all these were trying to cash in on scream's success cuz scream made big big bucks at the box office.
1: So the other shout out you do a lot of shout outs and acknowledgement, but the other one that got a special recognition I thought was the short story by Stephen King, the Raft, which I read last night after watching <laughs> the sc- scream. and that seemed that was really creepy, but seemed to have a less direct influence from what I could tell tell why is that important to you and tell maybe talk about that story a bit
2: I, I've, I remember growing up, I read that story so many times i just I love the the economy of it it's just four characters go out to um like a what do you call it a floating raft on the lake on this like hidden lake this lake that's not trafficked a whole lot and while they're out there the horror comes and basically eats them all and i just um i like the limited cast i love that it's basically a closed door thing and that the the water is the doors they can't leave it's a really tight space and the characters seem really like stephen king at that time was able to do like a 19 and 20 year old what feels like uh, really accurately to me anyways especially when i was 13 reading it it was accurate because i didn't know what it was like but um now that i've been that age it feels accurate as well you know mm-hmm.
1: all right so let's we asked the audience here the live audience to write some questions and one of the questions is one i've never ever seen asked to an author in all my years i've been doing this close to 30 years
2: so i'm just going to ask it as written oh wait it's not I had I was doing an event in Seattle once, and I had some people come up and ask if they could smell my hair. It's not that, is it? No, it's not <laughs> that. It's
1: not that. It's a relevant question. It's a relevant question, but still, one I've never asked an author before. How do you think you would react if a person with a huge knife came after you?
2: Um, I'd react by dying probably. Um, <laughs> like like when I think, which character would I be in a slasher? You know, I would almost surely be the The couple—I'd be one side of the couple out at Lover's Lane in the car, getting you know eviscerated or whatever, and hung from a tree. And that'd be what I do, you know, because I don't think um, I make it very long. I don't think I make it long in a zombie apocalypse either, because those people in zombie apocalypse—they're always like eating cold peas from a can—and I just couldn't do that. (laughs)
1: <laughs> so, well, the other part of this question the, the first was, do you have a final girl inside yourself? It sounds like you're saying no, despite wearing a final girl t-shirt.
2: I, love, I would love to think that I do. Um, and, I mean, I, I do think that we all should see, or suspect a final girl inside ourselves, but I see, like, um, Jess Bradford in Black Christmas, or, like I was talking about Constance in Just Before Dawn, um, some of these characters, when pushed, come back with so much more than they've ever expressed before. You know, we all imagine that, you know, we're that person. And um, so I think I would at least go into that confrontation thinking I had that potential, you know? But <laughs> whether I truly do or not remains to be seen. Um, I, I, I wouldn't be above like accidentally cutting my leg off with the chainsaw I'm trying to use, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't think.
0: Here's another question from the audience. Do you see any unexpected developments in modern slashers and tropes being changed or exploited?
2: Oh, for sure. Uh, like, wh- I guess this current slasher, well, we've kind of washed up at the end of what I consider another slasher. Like, I don't know if it's movement era what, but like, oh, Leslie Vern, like, Behind the Mask, the Leslie Vernon, s- no, Behind the Mask, the Leslie Vernon story. That's what it's called, right? That's a title. The look at the Yeah, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. Yeah, or... Tucker and Dale versus Evil, or even back further than that, All the Boys Love Mandy Lane, or coming up to Freaky, Tragedy Girls, Happy Death Day. Um, or it follows, it follows is a really good example probably, because it, it has all the beats of a slasher, but just like Final Destination, the slasher is kind of immaterial or jumps around or something. Um Yes, we're seeing all kinds of different things, and I I love that because when we see those different things, it's because of competition. It's because each new install, each new movie has to do something the last one didn't do, and so they're having to go further and further afield, or deeper and deeper into the folds or something to find new ways to tell what the story we think we know. And we don't actually know it as well as we think we do. There's a lot of um, variety still left inside the slasher, and sometimes it's that the final girl is the slasher, and sometimes it's that you're living the same day over and over again. You know, there, there seems to be endless variation, and I'm always impressed with the new stories these creators find to tell in what seems like a fatigued space.
1: You know, a question that Stephanie and I were talking about, both of us had this question, was, the slasher is a genre that we so many people have seen. You know the films are what really, and so you're writing a slasher. W- what do you have to do to do that? Meaning, you know, when you're seeing the film, so much is happening visually, and now you're you're, you're the writing has to be. What's the pacing like? Do you have to work hard on that? I mean. I'm sure you do work hard, but you know what you know what special concerns are there when trying to do something that's usually such a visual medium?
2: No, you're totally right. The slasher grew up at the cinema, and so a lot of its conventions are kind of locked into cinematic mode, you know and it's 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 tricky to um do do them or do versions of them on the page, you know, like with the only Good Indians, which is also a slasher like a, a, a really core component of slashers is always the slasher cam or what do people call it the um the lurker pe- point of view or something where you're looking through the mask or looking through the bushes at this person and that like creates that sense of menace and surveillance and everything that, that ups the tension uh, considerably how to do that how to do that on the page so on the only Good Indians what I decided was I would drop without a section break I would drop into second person into the behind the mask basically you know and but of course i couldn't do that again in my heart is a chainsaw that would you can't use the same you can't ring the same bell twice you know (laughs) of course um but so what i tried to do was as jade says in in the novel let her be the randy or the cassandra who is narrating it while living it if that if that can track and um i'm trying to think of what other oh the gore like gore the set piece killings that you know Tom Savini does the makeup for, um quite often in the early ones anyways, are always a really central part of the slasher. That the parts you want to watch from between your fingers, you know, they're they're kinda gross and icky. And um I think that's a part that's a place where fiction actually has a leg up on film because no matter how good Savini is, in nineteen in nineteen eighty he can shove a arrow up through you know, the prosthesis of Kevin Bacon's neck, and it can shock the audience, but you know, 40 years later, we're like, hey, we can see how that's done. You know, mm-hmm. um, on the page and text, you can, I think you can do it a little bit more viscerally, actually. You can make the reader or the audience more uncomfortable. But, and part of it is that you ask them, to um, be co-participants, to be co-creators. You know, you, you plan it in their head, and if they're completing the last 20% of that image or that feel, that scent, whatever it is, then they're invested in a way that they can't extract themselves from so easily. They, Basically, in fiction, I think it's harder, it's harder to see the zippers than it is on film, you know?
0: Don't have to spend all that money on special <laughs> effects. You can yeah. just yeah. write it in and let the... Yeah. Uh, audience's imagination fill in the rest for you yep. all right here's another question from the audience can you discuss craft How you decided on whether to use first and third person point of view etc
2: trial and error um with my heart as a chainsaw i wrote it the first time in 2013 from a like a royal first person where you say like a greek chorus instead of i it was we and i thought that was great but kind of sucked um and so then i wrote it again from third person, if I remember correctly. And it was like a lot of characters. We were jumping from person to person, and it was not I didn't think it was quite working. And so I rewrote the novel from the ground up again, and I cut it into thirds with three narrators. The first narrator was Jade, the second was Hardy, and the third was Letha, and they're distinct sex- sections. They didn't intercut with each other. And um, I thought that was the final version of My Heart is a Chainsaw. But I kept giving it to—I mean, I'd give it to friends, and they'd read it, and they'd say, "We really liked that Jade part. We were really bummed we had to leave Jade. You know, we—we we didn't want to listen to Hardy." And um, and it would break my heart because I'm like, "You don't want to listen to Slim Pickens." But um, <laughs> but so I went back and rewrote it from the ground up again, all through Jade, which changes the story drastically. Because if you're only looking over one character's shoulder, then you have to find out some—you have to figure out some way to make that character be at least peripheral to most of the main things, main events of the novel, and that last way I wrote it with Jade, with us being over her shoulder quite tightly, turned out to be the best way, but then I still had not yet written the Slasher 101 pieces, the extra credit essays that Jade writes to her history teacher. They came very, very late in the process, and they were each initially 10 or 12 pages long, and my editor and my agent said, "You know, get off your hobby horse, Steven. Why, why don't you, you're, you're not here to preach to us, you're here to <laughs> tell a story. And, and so I had to cut those down by 80, 90% and only leave the stuff that revealed character instead of the stuff that was me trying to use Jade as a sock puppet to say things I wanted to say about <laughs> the slasher, you know?
0: I do have to say, I think I would read that, that <laughs> doctoral <laughs> thesis on, <laughs> on everything to do with the slasher. Uh, There's a second part to the question, which is uh, how does this fit into the rest of your writing?
2: It's a slasher, number one. The Only Indians was a slasher. Night of the Mannequins is a slasher. Demon Theory is a slasher. The Last Final Girl is a slasher. It's horror, too. A lot of my books are horror as well. Um, But to tell you the truth, I think the way it probably fits in is I, I feel like I'm always writing about outsiders, people who aren't part of the main group, you know? And... Outsiders like finding their own value, their own worth. And I think I'll probably always be trying to tell that story.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I saw it that way too. I I was thinking how, at the end, I kind of thought, you know, there's something similar to mongrels in this. And I was like, mongrels is a totally different story, but it's that sense of an outsider, of a young person trying to find their way in the world. And that that does seem to be sort of a a through line in a lot of your writing.
2: Longing for belonging. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. I'll try to use that next talk. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, there's a long acknowledgement section, like six you're, six or seven pages, you know, and I think maybe eight. And, you know, I'm seeing this more and more. It's almost like acknowledgements are becoming their own genre. You know, if you look at books from 15, 20 years ago, acknowledgements might be a half page. You know, if you look at 30 years ago, they might be two sentences. Mm-hmm. And now you're seeing more. 2 3 pages. I think this is one of the longer acknowledgments I've ever seen. I don't know if it was the longest one you've written, but um, what do you what do you want to do there? And and I almost felt like is afterward almost a better thing than acknowledgments.
2: Yeah, th- afterward probably is a better a better um title for it, a subheading for it, and I think we probably just call these long afterwards acknowledgments as a way to trick the reader in to thinking it's going to be a short thank you, you know, Um, (laughs) that it's not just the long-winded author still talking, you know. (laughs) Um, But with The Only Good Indians, it has a really long acknowledgment section as well, and it doesn't have any paragraph breaks in it, and the reason it doesn't is because my editor said, all right, keep this to a paragraph, you know, so it's (laughs) a six-page paragraph. (laughs) And he he published it, and so I thought that's license. So I did it again in my heart as a chainsaw. But the truth of the matter is, is novels aren't created like in a vacuum by one person by me. You know, it's my name on the cover, but I always feel like that's a little bit of a cheat because there's so many more people who have a hand in creating it and like steering me back on the path. You know, and I want to thank all those people who helped me, and also all the people who don't know they helped me. You know, like different songs and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, I love it. It's kind of a a map into your thinking um, and your influences while creating the book. And like I said, I I spent last night diving into a couple of those, and that was great fun.
2: Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, as I write my novels, I keep a little separate file of acknowledgments, and as I do something, I'm like, oh, got got to thank them, got to thank them. And by the time I finish a novel, I do have like two pages of bullet points. I got to do this, 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 you know?
0: All right, I've got another question from the audience. Uh, I'm a teacher, so I always ask a question for my students. What advice do you have for middle school writers?
2: If, um, well, if they're gonna write horror, and I would say this to all writers, not just middle school writers, make sure you write about something that scares you, because that's how you can scare the reader. But in a more general sense of just just beginning writers, I would say um, write in what, Feels like your natural voice. It's hard to. I mean, it's hard to find your voice when you're starting out, of course. But it's too easy to judge yourself by. Well, this doesn't sound like Ray Bradbury, and Ray Bradbury is the best, so this must not be good. You know, it's easy to get caught in that kind of loop. Um, just tell a story the same way you would tell your little brother or your little sister a story, and that's the way it's usually going to work. It's it's too easy to. Like, if you have all the pressure on yourself of like all the New York critics, 200 years of history, everybody's over my shoulder looking at each word I write, you're not going to get anything done because you've got too high of a standard. So just pretend that um, it's a commercial during X-Files and you're telling a little anecdote to a friend, you know, and I think you can get stuff done really well that way.
1: I've got a writing question as well. I think this is my last one here. A lot of authors have strict... Superstitions, set writing routines. Do you have a particular writing routine you stick to?
2: No, I keep waiting to grow up and have a schedule, but it keeps on not <laughs> happening. <laughs> and I'm 49, you know, like I don't have much time left probably to get a routine. But um, um, and uh, as far as rituals, like I know that like, I've talked to a lot of writers who are like, when I write, I have to have like um, this lamp on to this this degree and this music playing and this glass of tea or coffee and like a whole like satellite or constellation of things and um so I can write but my my take on that is that doing that is just stocking yourself with excuses not to write you know like oh my cat isn't here I guess another day blown you know I can't I can't can't (laughs) do that story Um, and uh, I think the like you always hear that anecdote about the new parents living in some apartment building in the big city that they they have a dinner party finally after their baby is a couple months old and come about eight thirty, the guests quiet down they're like oh, oh we n- your baby needs to go to sleep and the parents say no no be as loud as you possibly can we want to train this baby to sleep in spite of the noise because that's how the baby's going to be able to get some sleep through their whole life the when they grow up and i think that's the way you should write too you should train yourself that you don't need a set a constellation of things or situations or context to write in all you need is yourself and maybe a pen or a keyboard and hunch down in the bus stop hunch down under an umbrella in the rain um, hunch down wherever you need to be and write and soon enough your words will make a little dome around you that nobody can get in and it's quite safe inside there
0: well it certainly seems to have worked for you I mean you've you're quite prolific you've written so many things and you also teach and you also are doing things like this what seems like all the time like how do you have the energy to <laughs> to do all this, th- all the things that you do.
2: Um, just caffeine, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, I I firmly believe that in order to like, I don't know, make it as a writer, you have to choose writing over everything but family and health. You know, which is to say, maybe don't go to the basketball game, maybe don't go hang out at the bar, don't watch that reality show. And it's just all about choices. You know, uh, I want to write. Badly enough, then I'm going to trade in these other things, and what I get from writing is worth more than what I get from those other things. I mean, it's hard, it's terrible to say that, because it's kind of like turning your friends off too. You know, I don't need y'all, and that's terrible to say, because we need friends. Friends are our family. Um, But um, just maybe, don't allow yourself excuses. Maybe that's the way to say it. You know, Um, the real test of if you're a writer, I think it comes at one in the morning. You know, and if you're if you're gonna make yourself stay awake 20 more minutes to get 30 words down, maybe maybe you can go the distance, you know.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much. Oh, you have oh, yeah, one, one more I've got question. Got one more I don't want to cut it off. I hear the CU band playing yeah, out the window. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Any recommendations for horror novels slash novellas slash
2: short stories to read? Oh man, always. Um, let's see. You know. Talking slashers, Grady Hendrix's The Final Girl Support Group just came out a month ago, um, maybe a month and a half ago, right around there. So it's neat that we had two slasher novels come out this summer. Um, the slash, the horror novel I always recommend, it seems like, is Gemma Files' experimental film. It's probably from 2012, around there. That novel to me just functions exactly as a horror novel should should work. It's Really well paced. It's got a lot of velocity. It's really creepy. Characters you care about. Just everything good I think is in that novel. Um short stories, oh I'd probably recommend Gwendolyn Keist's what's it called? The the Nine weight No, that well that too. <laughs> What are the Nine Ways You Killed Me? The Ten Ways You Killed Me? It's, it's, if you search Gwendolyn Keist and Ways You Killed Me, which sounds like a terrible search, but um, <laughs> then her story will probably come up. and it, It's a really good one. It's on Nightmare, I think, Nightmare Magazine.
1: All right. Well, that's all for Stephen Graham Jones. We're here after hours at the KGNU Boulder Bookstore Radio Book Club podcast. Thank you, Stephanie, for co-hosting this time thing. And thanks Stephen for being here again. We really appreciate it. Thank
2: you all for having me. It was delightful talking to you all.